Welcome to Office Talk, a fortnightly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leading architects about their approach to business, marketing, and communications. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, an architectural marketing expert and director of Office Dave Sharp, a marketing practice offering specialized consultancy, marketing, and PR services tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or follow the practice on Instagram at officedavesharp. This episode was sponsored by ArchiPro. ArchiPro showcases the best and latest in the architecture and building industry and helps to connect homeowners with trusted trade professionals and products that will suit their needs. For architects and designers, ArchiPro helps you to create a profile for your practice in a way that best expresses your brand and your work, and then it directly connects you with a niche audience of people on their architectural build or renovation journey. Many architects rely on word-of-mouth referrals or search engine traffic to find new clients, but it can be difficult to attract the people you really want to design for and work with. That's why ArchiPro helps clients to match their specific architectural taste and budget with the right architect or designer for their project. You can also use the platform throughout the design and build journey with your clients by directly sharing inspiration and sourcing products for your projects as well. So if you'd like to find out more about ArchiPro, visit www.archipro.com.au. Joining me on the show today is David Newstein from Other Architects, a small research-driven practice he and his partner Grace Mortlock founded in 2012. Other Architects received the 2021 Houses Award for Emerging Architecture Practice and the 2018 Indie Prodigy Award for Most Promising Design Practice in the Asia-Pacific region, and their work has been exhibited all over the world. In this episode, David and I discussed how the studio has used speculative or unsolicited projects to establish themselves as leaders in interesting and unexpected niches, such as cemeteries. We looked at why David believes that some of the most valuable ideas, solutions, and techniques can often be found in the work of small practices outside Australia, and why connecting with the international architecture community can become a meaningful point of difference in the local market. And we looked at how positioning, brand identity, and brand value have been important in the journey at Other Architects. We looked at how the studio has developed a clear sense of what they're about or not about and how this process of self-reflection has helped them to focus their message, generate clearer ideas, decide on the right projects to focus on and communicate their ideas with more confidence. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with David Newstein from Other Architects. David, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's my absolute pleasure. Very happy to be here. Oh, it's very exciting. Um, so tell us a little bit about other architects. I'm very keen to uh, get a little bit of a little background on the studio. Uh, I think a lot's changed with you guys over the last few years. You know, you're a fast growing studio and doing all these exciting things. So just, yeah, give us a little bit of a background for people that aren't familiar with the studio. Yeah, absolutely. So other architects, which is a name, you know, kind of ungoogleable name is run by me, David Newstone, and my partner, Grace Mortlock. Uh, we're based in Sydney. I remember in preparation for this, I went back over sort of past the origins of the practice and I found this piece of paper that I wrote when Grace and I were really just starting to kind of get things up and running and when she was considering whether she would leave her current office and sort of stop doing night shifts with me and start doing something full-time that said in our aspirations we wanted to have some measure of local success five years into the practice and some level of international notoriety 10 years in. Um, and then really soon after that, we kind of collapsed that whole ambition. It took us a lot longer 
to get any local traction, but um, but we started to sort of get some international things happening very early, and that kind of shaped us as a practice. Um, you know, we are. I would say that what we aspire to be is an ideas practice. We think architecture is about the communication of ideas, and that's what really excites us. So we're focused on producing buildings, which give us the feedback we need to know about how architecture interacts with the world. But we want to be known as a practice that is there driving ideas that relate to everyday people, that relate to big issues in the urban environment. Yeah. Wow. It's a it's a big, big kind of ambition. And that sort of um, international success that you guys had or that recognition that you got early on, just briefly, like what sort of what sort of stuff was that? What did uh, what did you guys kind of do uh, early on in the practice internationally? So, yeah, our heroic sort of uh, origin story is that we were part of a global search run by the curators of the Chicago Architecture Biennial, which was the first big North American architectural exposition. They had 500 practices from around the world, or in our case, very fledgling practices on their list. I think they spoke to about 20 in Australia. Um, At the time, we had no built work. We had nothing to offer them when they said, hey, show us something of yours. So we just came back with a proposal and that turned out to be exactly what they were looking for. And so we were invited as the only Australians into this very prestigious event um, alongside a whole lot of the architects like Pritzker Prize winners Lacaton and Vassal that we most admired. So it was it was absolutely fan. It was like a, the ultimate fan experience. We went from being complete outsiders to being right in the mix. And within yep. a few weeks of the exhibition opening, we were in the Wall Street Journal. We were being called yep. by Metropolis and a bunch of other people as one of the best things to see. And so we've, in a way, we're kind of, you know, that set us up in, 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 that gave us a really unrealistic expectation of what practice would be like and what our careers would be like in the short term moving forward. It kind of set our ambitions, but it also gave us some complications, I think, in terms of what we thought we were going to be able to manage. But also um, it, it gave us no choice in a way. We couldn't grow organically through sort of tiny unseen things, we were already in the spotlight and we felt that right from the outset. Yeah, and interesting. How did they find you? Did you guys like, did they do a kind of a call out for young ideas-driven architecture practices and you guys were like, yes, please, that's us, we're keen? <laughs> I, I could demystify that a little. Through connections and through my previous writing work, I'd written an, an editorial for Domus. One of the curators, Joseph Grimmer, had been the editor at the time. Uh, I'd also written a little essay for a publication that the Graham Foundation published and the Graham Foundation's director, Sarah Herder, was the other curator. So I think when they cross-referenced names, my name came up as someone in Australia. And when they Googled, they found this, what you often talk about on your show, they found this Squarespace website with a whole lot of unbuilt projects masquerading as as projects yep. underway. I mean, that's probably what they were looking for. To They're probably looking for that to be. <laughs> to be. Well, well, we got in the mix, you know, there were some much yep. more established practices in the mix, but we got that's on crazy. the list yep. and then they just started emailing and that kind of went from there. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's funny because, um, I feel like, you know, you bring up, oh, well, they found us because I was writing for Domus and stuff like that. That, that in itself is like a huge thing. And I think we could peel back kind of layers and layers of big things that you did early on that are pretty big ambitious move to make in the first couple of years of starting an architecture practice like then that's not a common thing that you see you know people i find that when they're starting their studios like they they're not out there writing about architecture talking about architecture being these kind of showing this sort of thought leadership stuff but what was in your background like teaching or academia or what or, or just like your personal career that had gotten you comfortable going hey I'm starting a studio and I'm in the first couple of years but you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna go 
write an article for Domus and I'm going to, you know, like these sorts of things. I'd just love to sort of think about that a little bit more. So Grace and I both have architectural heritage. Her grandfather, Bryce Mortlock, was the Mortlock in Anchor, Mortlock and Woolley, one of the leading modernist practices in Australia. And so she grew up. She, uh, he, she grew up as a kid in his workshop building models and things like that. So she was really steeped in it herself. And my dad is an architect and planner. So oh, I grew okay. up and he was really into the magazine. So I grew up, you know, you know, when I was a teenager, I was already reading architecture record and progressive architecture and these sorts of things. And, and you know, and, and being amazed by things like the Guggenheim in Bilbao, like these, these stories would happen, a new project, the Toyota Sendai Media Tech would be completed and I would just like grab the magazine and stare at this amazing thing. And my mum is a former journalist and English teacher, writing consultant. So I had a really good mix from the beginning of knowing about architectural culture, having confidence in writing. And when I was in third year architecture, I used the, I just started trying to get writing work because I thought it would be a really great opportunity to meet architects and see these projects from the inside. And that's kind of where it began. Um, and yeah. that, again, as I was saying, it gives you a kind of, for me, it gave me access to people. It gave me a sort of level of, of connection to the community that was very unusual and I was really reluctant to, to relinquish. You know, I wanted to stay part of that conversation. I, it was hard then to go back into the quiet, kind of quiet pathway of being a regular student and getting work experience. I really wanted to be in that mix right from the beginning. Today's episode of Office Talk is also sponsored by Mast Furniture. Mast Furniture is an established furniture design and manufacturing company based in Brisbane. They've been in operation for 10 plus years and built a national and international reputation for producing original furniture of the highest quality. With an in-depth knowledge of traditional woodworking techniques combined with utilising modern technology, mass production capabilities position them uniquely in Australia to produce high quality, technically challenging furniture. Mast enjoy working with architects and interior designers on both residential and commercial projects, and their range of furniture is small yet considered. In March of this year, Mast released their new Beam collection. Designed by Adam Cornish, Beam focuses on the marriage of upholstery and timber and how to strike a balance between the two. So to learn more about Mast Furniture, visit their website, mastfurniture.com.au or check out their Instagram at mastfurniture. It's interesting because I, you know, I can I can relate to this idea at the start of your career, thinking back to kind of being at architecture school and you know being so keen to kind of go out there and you know, meet these meet these great architects I was hearing about and doing anything you can to kind of get the name out there. And I think I, that totally makes sense from a kind of employee track where you're going to maybe go and int- explore an interest in working in some of these practices and things like that. But I think sometimes where this there's this disconnect is when it comes to starting a practice, starting a business where people maybe don't necessarily see the benefit in those relationships or it's not like immediate because we start to we get into this more transactional mindset of, well, I need, I, I mean, if I'm not just talking to paying customers, you know, homeowners or cafe owners or whatever, I'm kind of wasting my time. There's not really any benefit to, you know, going and kind of mingling with um, great architects in, you know, in Milan or whatever, like, what's how's that going to help my small practice? But I think like, what, what you bring up and the stuff that has gone on with your studio is re- really interesting examples of how it can, how you do that sort of stuff. And then it leads to these opportunities to promote the work that you're doing and your ideas as an ideas-based practice. And then, you know, 
somehow, I don't know exactly how, but it does translate into that transactional side as well. Gradually, it's kind of, it gets in that direction. So, I mean, what are your, what are your kind of thoughts on that? Just in terms of that engaging with the industry as a way of like indirectly engaging with eventual kind of paying clients. That's a really good question. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is the smart way to launch a practice, which I think we've discussed before, and it's very clear in some of the with some of the people that you speak to, is to go into an established practice that you feel offers a good model for how you'd like to work. Learn their tricks. Wait yep. until you've got enough runs on the board with clients and with and completed projects, and then start to put together your own, you know, little teledex or or set of contacts for where your projects might go until you've got enough happening. You know, you probably have a weird crossover moment where you're doing, where you're moonlighting and uh, it's not really explicit with your employer. And then you've got to the kind of critical mass. You're like, right, this is the time to go out there. These projects are going to start being completed. We can publish them or, you know, and then we can build up from that point on. That's an organic, a sensible organic process. Um, I, Grace and I didn't follow that model. She followed it more closely because she worked with Dunn and Hillam, who are really excellent Sydney practice, super knowledgeable. Grace knows a lot more and has been about building and about detailing and has been transmitting that to me through our partnership. Um, but I didn't follow that model at all. I was a, I worked for a number of different practices. I did a whole bunch of things like teaching. I was doing the writing um, and I was too too keen and too eager to get into it. Um, uh, I just couldn't wait. So I launched in. And, you know, some people will tell you that, you know, I speak to architects who are very wise and have been through this. They say, no, the best time to start a practice is yesterday. You should just jump in. You're never, you know, it's, you need the earlier you start, the earlier you discover the pitfalls and the earlier that you, that you identify how to maintain a sustainable practice. But I didn't know the first thing about marketing. Um, I didn't know how to run a business. And that conversation was ongoing from when I was a student. I transferred my student level of enthusiasm into practice. Now I look back and I say, I think that should happen more. You had a great conversation with Kirsten Thompson where she was talking a lot about that, about how to how there's a kind of speculation and enthusiasm for ideas that's fostered in the architecture school. And architects mm. then come out, graduate, and think that they can sort of shelve that. I don't think there's an outlet for that and what a disappointment that is. Yeah. But that's been my experience. I wouldn't, as I think as you would, as, as, as you might be hinting at, I wouldn't advise that um, for, you know, for listeners who might be um, young graduates or thinking of starting a practice, hey, this is the way to do it. You should just sort of cast a wide net, try to be interested in and involved in architectural culture and hope it lands you a, a, a niche in the industry. Um, but um, the other thing for me is that, you know, I didn't, I had with no expect. I had no expectation about how the these the sort of you know being involved and interested in architectural culture was going to manifest in a client base or in a particular type of work. I just it was more education for me. I just knew I had more to learn from from the community of architects. Yep, totally. No, that really makes sense. Um, this entire topic of sort of self generated or unsolicited work, which I've really been keen to talk to you about. It comes up every now and then, and it's always fascinating to hear how studios have taken a risk of, you know, approaching a client or working on a scheme that wasn't as part wasn't part of a competition or something like that, but it was just sensing an opportunity and creating something and spending the time on it, and then it potentially turning into a real thing. And it's so amazing whenever that sort of thing happens, and it's 
really been something for you guys that has happened and it's led on to a bunch of follow-on things. So be kind of keen to maybe talk about, I guess, like your overall perspective on unsolicited work, or maybe we'll get to that, but maybe just a little bit more about what sort of stuff you've done or maybe an example that, that kind of comes to mind. Yeah, I'm very keen to talk about that topic. I think it's one of the things that's more unusual about us. Um, yeah. Having said that, you know, you've, you've spoken with Matt Goodman, who was producing yep. his own house designs before he had clients. And there's a long history of, of things like that. I mean, the reality is we're in a current, we're in a very unusual historical moment where very few architects produce work as speculations about the world around them. And mm -hmm. most architects rely on things like competitions to frame and kind of generate their thoughts. And we, you know, I've, I've done a fair few competitions, both with practices that I've worked with and then, you know, in my own right and with Grace. And we've been reasonably successful, but you, you have to know that the chances are low, especially at the outset. But they are for big practices. You know, I remember someone like, I think it was Jean Nouvel who said that it was like one out of every 10 he entered. He was very yeah. successful. He won one out of every 10. And that's <laughs> exactly. competitions that are, that are star architects getting invited to be part yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's crazy, right? They're, 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 they offer a kind of false hope. And now there's this whole ecosystem where there's, there's you know, European architects who graduate into an economy where they can't find work are creating competitions as a business model for students to enter that they have to pay to enter that have no outcomes at all. I mean, it's just, it has this kind of, it's kind of like a desperate pyramid scheme. Uh, there's, there's obviously there's a need for competitions and our economy is geared towards competitions, but part of the issue with competitions as opposed to a kind of, you know, the, an alternative, which might be generating your own unbuilt, you know, if you're thinking about work that isn't client driven, people aren't generally that interested in seeing the schemes that lost a competition, you know, that's already, they've already been kind of vetted by the competition organizer. They're a losing scheme. Is there really that much to be interested about? And also you can't really claim then what the idea is because the idea was the brief you were given. So, yeah. so it's very hard to, but, but, but so the, the whole attraction for me with this unsolicited work and honestly, if we, if it was, we would do a lot more of it if it was financially feasible. If I had a, if we had a patron or a backup, or we had yeah. a better, a better, a better um, relationship with with universities than we do, for example, um, which is something I really like, we would be able to do more, and there we would be able to grow these things more rapidly and put more time and effort into them. The best example I can give you is that in in the lead up, in the couple of years leading up to 2019, we were heavily involved in the master plan for a new bushland campus for Rookwood Cemetery, which is the biggest cemetery in the Southern Hemisphere. A minister didn't sign off on that project. And then we were engaged in working with Rookwood to try to find an alternative site. And we were testing all of these sites all the time and just running into roadblocks. There were other interests. The land was too expensive. It was really hard to find a big enough site that was close to the city. Uh, there, were, there were heritage constraints or things like that that prevented being able to do the sort of conventional cemetery approach, but also we were we were we were conscious that we were inheriting all of these traditional ideas about cemeteries and trying to reproduce them for these sites, and that we were conscious there were other ideas that might be more valid or more productive that we weren't able to test because of our clients' focus. Then, in, at the end of 2019, um, I went on holiday to Tasmania. I think Grace was in the US. There were bushfires all over Australia. 
the world was burning, you know, the, the, the climate, climate change had arrived. And I was sort of churning over that and also churning over this unsuccessful cemetery um, sort of uh, exercise. And I was coming into the office when the year started, unbelievably grumpy, like a huge dark cloud hanging over my head. And Grace said, you're going to have to fix this. Like either you have to figure out what you need to do to feel more positive or don't come in, you know, because no one needs this energy. And I just sort of sat down and started thinking about what I would do if I didn't have those constraints. Like if I wanted to work in cemeteries and I wasn't subject to the kind of constraints, what would I want to do ideally? And I was like, oh, we're not, we don't need to build cemeteries as close to city centres as people think. I think there might be an alternative. And I'd really like to make those cemeteries ecologically sustainable or, you know, to the, to the, to the greatest extent they could be. And what would that experience be like? Could we actually rethink this experience? And so I started having these, these thoughts about a different model of cemetery. And then I was like, guys, can we spend a little bit of time just kind of thinking this thing through? While we were thinking that through, there was a call out for the Oslo Architecture Triennial that was looking for proposals about degrowth. And we we're like, this is a great idea. This, this will relate well to degrowth because we're talking about how to degrow cemeteries. Um, and the, the, the key of the idea was that we could use natural burial to create forests. And because, nat- because burial is enshrined in perpetuity in New South Wales, you only need to bury one person in a big forest to lock up that land. So you could potentially occupy big bits of land that were vulnerable to other uses like suburban sprawl or that needed rehabilitation. If you bury someone in there, it's not just a forest. Now it's a protected burial forest. So we're like, let's do this. And the appeal for degrowth was that on one hand, you were decarbonizing the cemetery landscape of hardscaping and roads and headstones and all that sort of stuff. And on the other hand, you were kind of growing because you were saying, we want to, we want to, wasteland we want to exploit land we want this thing to be as big as possible so that that was that proposal was accepted um, for oslo and then shortly after like i'm saying i mean literally a week or so later there was an article in the guardian with the ceo of a new not-for-profit organization called earth funerals who had a business model for creating uh, natural burial natural burial grounds in a way that would restore the environment and I read that and I was like, this is the business model, which is the equivalent to our kind of spatial model. It was just right there. So I picked up the phone and called him. They had a, I think they had a, an email address or something or a, or a website address. I tracked him down. I called him up. And as soon as I started explaining what we were interested in, he was like, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. Let's, let's meet. Let's talk about this. And so that led to this relationship with Earth Funerals. We're now working really closely with them and have been for a few years and um, well, ever since, and uh, the first of those burial grounds, which is near the New South Wales-Victorian border, is well underway. And it's also created this whole other set of conversations with cemetery trusts, with government advisory groups. We just did a, an, an interview in a, in a, in a, with Space 10, who's IKEA's think tank about this subject. So wow. a lot of traction. And, we kind of, and we've done a series of projects since and the, the beauty is like we don't we don't we didn't invent natural burial. Um, there are lots of other people in this area, but it's become a real focus of ours, and we kind of own our focus. Like we own what we're interested in. Um, it's associated with us. We didn't enter a competition for natural burial or a cemetery competition. And if we did, every time you looked at that, you would find that it was associated with the competition organizer, and there were other proposals or things like that. This is something we're clearly passionate about and have identified as an area of focus. Mm-hmm. And every time. We look for opportunities now all the time to do more steps in that direction. So uh, last year, 
or two years ago, we were in uh, the the an exhibition uh, Biennale of Architecture and Landscape in Versailles, and we did a new iteration of that same project that was looking at augmented reality and cyclical development. So you don't need to expand and, and occupy more land. Um, and so every time we do one of these things, we just kind of increase the ideas base and give us more that we could then implement elsewhere. Wow, that's so cool. Are you are you also as the ideas kind of evolve and expand? Are you also continuing that sort of like research into who is out there, businesses that are in the space, like people that you can kind of like network and build relationships with? Because that seemed like a real key stroke of like connecting it together with uh, a person for you to actually not just like develop the project and sort of float it out there in kind of architecture world, but to also be like, hey, business guy, <laughs> you know, we this is the perfect project for you and we found you and like it's a great fit. I mean, that's so good. So that's still kind of part of the mix as well. Yeah, definitely. And and we definitely do that, but also it's got its own momentum now. It rolls downhill. Yeah, so, you don't so need to push Google, it as much now. Yeah, yeah. You, you Google cemeteries. Yeah. You Google cemeteries and architecture or cemeteries and landscape or, you know, you'll find us. Yeah. And so lots of people who are in this space are coming to us uh, because yep. they link all the Love dots. It. And yeah. Love it. It's such a, such a small but important category, cemeteries probably the only architecture firm in the country that has a cemeteries category on their portfolio, I would guess, unless there's like, you know, I don't know, but like it's it's amazing. Um, and it's such a good example of how generalism and specialization are not mutually exclusive in architecture yeah. that you can like have this portfolio of little niches where you're the number one in the country, but still be overall doing no limitation on what you can do as a practice in terms of the types of work that you work on, which is what I absolutely yeah. love to see. Such a yeah, good example. Well, but I mean, the, the, the other thing for us is that, like, I, I don't know, I'm not saying this is like a statement of virtue or, or a critical decision, but we base our interests. We look at a lot of work overseas, you yeah. know, we're looking at, and, and around Australia, we're always looking at other people's work. We're always conscious of it. You can't not be, but that's not what's, that's not what's influencing our direction. We don't see a great new Kennedy Nolan or Anna Holtrop project or something and go, right, everyone down tools. This is what we're now going to try and focus on in our work. <laughs> Where the, the focus of the work comes from reading the newspaper. It comes from being conscious of housing shortages, burial space shortages, climate change, COVID and its impact on how people work or on air, air movement, the, you know, on decarbonization. It comes from, from the, from being receptive all of us to this kind of to the bigger picture we're operating in and that's what's driving us we're trying to we're trying to look at respond to those issues which we think are really urgent and important through the architectural work you know that's it that as to the extent that it's possible there's jobs that won't be an ideal alignment um but we're we're, we're tr that's really what we're what that's the that's the criterion that we use to assess our work is it actually yeah. relevant to what's going on in the world today yeah yeah, it's really it's really interesting. Um, it's it's a very like I think of that as a very challenging model for a practice to to live in that space. It's what it sort of seems like and feels like, and I feel like most people listening or arc directors of little practices would be going like, "Oh God, like that's that would be great," but it's just really 
so hard to exist in that space um, as a as a sort of a business. But then, you know, you think about it, and I think about like the bigger firms, um, the ones that have two hundred employees. You know, the big mega mega companies in the space. I think if almost every single one of them, it seems like that is the world that they exist in. Those are the issues they're talking about, and that's what they're thinking about. You know, so it's interesting. It's almost like on the one hand, I'm like very challenging uh, business model, but then again, maybe. Maybe playing in that space is really the key to having a really big ambition for the practice. And I'm not saying that you guys are going to be like 250 people in 10 years, but but you know what I mean? Like maybe I think there's like maybe a certain, you have to almost, you have to kind of get into that world of the real big issues to to get to get onto that larger scale, I suppose, maybe. I don't know, yeah, just, spe- just speculating on it, but it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. We'll see, right? We can, we, we will come back on your once your podcast is, if you'll have me back once, you know, as it continues to grow, I can come back on later and yeah. we can talk about whether yeah, that's no, actually maybe, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll come back. Well, you know what? I've seen it happen a couple of times where um, I uh, t- t- small practices that don't play in that world, that aren't thinking like death and climate change and society and homelessness and like society issues, that they're just thinking what's what's kind of cool at the moment, let's just design that sort of thing, like normal, like normal sort of practices. It's very, very slow incremental kind of growth typically. Like it's a grind that happens over like years and years and years. And it's just these slow evolutions as each project comes out. And that's awesome. But from a growth standpoint, I think the interesting thing about when you're dealing with these big ideas is that they scale up to big clients and big projects. They can do really quickly. And I do see a lot of these studios and I've worked with practices where overnight they've gone from like three people to 33 people because they picked up some enormous project somewhere that that's in their wheelhouse in terms of uh the challenge and the concept and the and the topic that like in another part of the world it just is a sudden like overnight something happened it's not it's not the norm but it's kind of like do you feel like maybe that would be the potential growth trajectory for you guys on that non-residential side where it would be like oh shit we just landed like the biggest cemetery in the Northern Hemisphere uh, project and we're going to have to scale up to 30 people. And like, I guess that's 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 a not an unrealistic sort of scenario, is it? Well, I hope not. That sounds great. Um, I think that... I <laughs> sounds, think that you're, sounds stressful, I'll say. <laughs> having, 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 having larger ambitions that are more, that are communicable to a la- much larger audience definitely allows you to scale your work. But but also yeah. the, the reality is that the access into all kinds of projects is through the conversations you have. Yeah. Ultimately, if you're in the door, if someone will talk to you, it's then how can, how do you understand what they're dealing with? How do you talk to them? How do you give them confidence in your conversation that you can work with them, understand their problems and deliver? And so by having these conversations, by initiating them ourselves, we've been really well placed to then know what to talk about when we're getting that room. So mm. we started looking at cemeteries. We were interested in cemeteries for longer than we had projects. But when we got in that room and we were asked to sort of identify what the issues were, we could just go. We didn't have to say, oh, look, we'll come back to you or you tell us and we'll, we'll make it elegant. We were like, okay, here, here are some of the issues that we think are, are problems, you know, from, from, from issues of yield to land management legislation. You know, we were kind of a little, you know, we, weren't, we didn't have all the, the complete picture, but we knew how what some of the things were. And we're trying, we try to do that in all these other spaces. But to go back to your point about a kind of a sort of theoretical normative practice and how they might look at that work, it's not mm. just that you that the incremental change takes a long time. 
It's also that by the time you see built architecture that would be your base, it's years in development. So if I waited to see what Andrew Power was doing or what Second Edition were doing, and I waited until they had completed their work to form what my next work would be, I would be three years behind their trajectory. And then three years, it would be take another three years, let's say, until I could ultimately implement that. So I'm six years behind. And if I wanted to be chasing new opportunities in the work, that's far too long a lag. You have to be able to set your own trajectory if you want to be at the edge of what's coming. And if you, and you can't scale up unless you are at that edge. Yep. That's something that is brought up so often on the podcast that uh, where we talk about having sort of a broad range of influences on our work that are independent of like what's happening today on Instagram or what we're seeing tomorrow in Houses Magazine, you know, that we're, we're getting our ideas from other places. Like I love it when, you know, Chris from Archer was saying like, oh, I just really got into economics podcasts. <laughs> and he was probably like binge listening to some Bloomberg shit. And then all of a sudden he comes up with like him and his team come up with some crazy projects, you know, out of out of nowhere that relate to that. I'm like, I don't get the connection, but I love it. I, I think so it's always these examples of these like influences. And I think like you, you seem like the sort of practice that also has that sort of you know, eclectic mix of influences on your work where you're not sort of six years behind what the practice up the road in Collingwood or, or no, you guys are in Sydney, but you know, you're not, you're not just looking at that practice next door and going, Oh, what are they doing? Let's kind of keep up with them. But you're, you're kind of looking at the whole world in terms of what's out there. And, and, you know, Chris, Chris, that's extremely Chris energy to be reading the economist. When I meet with Chris, <laughs> who's one of those people you go to, to look at what's happening kind of in, in practice innovation, he has every latest kind of productivity app and system he is across it it's amazing whereas with with me and with grace they like those things ferment really slowly you know like they're they're kind of gradual i'm a really late adopter um uh so things for me come through really slowly and sometimes a lot and this will be common with a lot of your listeners and a lot of people in practice you might also be looking back you're not necessarily trying to look forward you're just trying not to stare directly into the sun at what's coming out right now yeah because um because it's so, as, and as people have said previously on your podcast, it's so destabilizing. Like if you if you're set in a particular direction, and then you then you see what what someone really clever is doing, or has just done, or has just won an award for, you know, like you can't um, as an as a creative person, as an emotional person, but also in terms of your like your direction and your team morale, you can't you can't just be sort of jumping at all of those things and questioning what you're doing. You really have to have other values. That are that are influence, you know, informing your work, and then you're kind of when you do that, you're more just sort of taking on things as confirmation of your bias. You know, I see really excellent things that sibling is doing, or I see something, yeah. you know, fantastic that that uh, Lineberg Wang are doing, or something like that. Yeah, and I'll go, okay, that's I'm already interested in that thing, and this is confirming that other people are in that mix, and that's giving me more confidence rather than be like, oh, drop everything, we've got to change what we're doing, or. Or, or punishing yourself for not being, not being that person. And social media is this kind of instrument of punishment. You know, you look at Instagram when you're feeling good and you've got work coming in, and um, and you and you have your own recent sort of buzz. Someone's put an article out about you or something, and you look at it and you're like, yeah, cool. Look at all these other guys. I'm so happy for them. If work's not going well or you don't have a project coming in, Instagram is just going to 
trash you. Like it's just, and it's the same with everything. It's like, it's like families or holidays or, or, or health routines. Like it's not just architecture. Um, it's, it's a real, it magnifies, it can really magnify your discontent and, um, it's incredibly valuable and it's been really valuable to us, but you have to, and I'm not always good at managing it or managing my, my kind of, you know, how it infiltrates my sense of well-being. but it's really important that people understand that, that it itself is also acting on that delay. It's like looking up at the constellation at night, those stars that you can see, that's not the moment those things have arrived and it doesn't, and they're not necessarily the perception you have of them isn't necessarily reality. And if you, if you're too credible, you know, like if you're too, if sorry, not credible, if you're too gullible or if you're too, if you put too much stock in what you're seeing, um, it's really, it's imp- impossible to have your own going back to confidence, impossible yeah. to have your own confidence as a, pra- as a practice or yeah. a practitioner. Yeah. yeah. The other thing I think for me, like what's the trend in your podcast um, between, you're, you're a bit uncomfortable with my being so interested. I'm such a fan. I, um, a little bit. <laughs> but, but the, the, you're not used to this, but, um, but it's like, I think what's really, what's been really interesting as a theme listening to younger and more and much more established practitioners, which is what's great about the cross section of people you have. You know, I can listen to Trias and then I can listen to Sean Godsell. Um, I can listen to, um, you know, John Gollings, um, the, the more established people, the ones who come from the pre who, who made their names in the pre internet era mm. are sort of upset by, and I think there's, I'm not saying this in a, in a disparaging way. I think it's un, really understandable. I don't, I don't have an observation. It's more of an observation than a value statement, but yep. the established pra- practitioners, they, they recall, you know, they look back fondly on this time when there were a few really credible yeah. established sources of media and marketing and, and, and very knowledgeable and very important people would identify what was worth looking at. And, um, and they would sort of sort the wheat from the chaff, but they, and that, and they'd also make it much easier to understand how to position yourself because, sort of their perception of what good work is would filter in this direction. Yep. Obviously it was more complicated than that. Predominantly male figures looking for a particular type of work, constructing a narrative, overlooking all kinds of other aspects yep. of participation, inclusion, and all kinds of things. So it's much, the playing field's very different today. And then you get these young practices talking about the faking it till we make it and all the things they've had to do to kind of make as big a uh, um, kind of, throw things out in every direction online and on social media to create, to sort of put these things out there and try to construct through a network, um, this sense of them as a practice. So rather than there being this sort of single outlet, this single source of verification. And once you get there, things sort of work. Um, there's this, you need to make this kind of train, you need to triangulate your position. And that's incredibly irritating for the older practitioners who are like, not only are they not, kind of confused by that world, but they think it tells a, they, they, they don't, they don't, they can't see the authenticity in that story. Whereas previously it was, they mm. could really trust that what Francesco and Elko said was good work was good work. Um, yeah. Now it's, now it's PR agencies who are sort of spinning out chat GPT generated um, yep. text about projects with very artfully constructed photo reels or videos or things. And it's a, very different and it's very it's hard, much harder to distinguish from the other from the from the general world of real estate and um pr yeah. and 
and fashion and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, there is a lot of, with the older guests, there is a lot of despair <laughs> about, about that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, it's part of the process, isn't it? I'm interested just in a comment that you picked up on uh, that you made there like probably a little, few minutes back, but just talking about growth happening on the cutting edge. And I think that's like, there's, it was very simple uh, idea, but that there's a lot of sort of harsh truth to that, I think, in terms of that you know, to be kind of on the cutting edge of work is seems to be where you find practices find the most traction. And if they're, if they're behind the ball, or they're not really contributing much. I mean, it's, it's got to work so much harder to get yourself out there. And I think arguably, you probably can't really get yourself out there if you're, if you're not, if you're not doing work on that, on that little sort of leading edge of what's different and cool and interesting. And, and I mean, we're probably oversimplifying it a little bit. And, the trolls on LinkedIn are going to be very upset by this conversation, but I just love love your thoughts on it because, look, I think like that's a pretty realistic view of how how things work at the moment, and maybe it will change, you know. But at the moment, that's pretty much kind of how it goes in a lot of ways. It, it, it's definitely, I mean, in terms of if you want to have timely, you know, Dave, you're you're very familiar with the with the media environment. Yeah. If you want to have timeliness on a story. Whoever's writing it needs to be able to, in terms of constructing a narrative, be able to explain why this thing, why now? Like that's just the simple reality. It's much harder to do that if you're not being given some ingredients about this is what's happening in housing today or this is a new thing in technology. You know, those stories become become much more work and also they they don't necessarily reach a reader. If you're reading something, you're not quite sure what it is about the piece of architecture, even if you like the pictures you're probably not going to get a sort of deeper connection to that material and it won't it won't have as much sort of traction or or, or relevance yeah. to you but you know that's that's just in terms of that's just that that outlet you know and as i and as i've already identified and as we you know as we both know and listeners will know being getting you know stories in in publications or being in you know in popular press that's not the be all and end all there's lots of other ways to be successful in practice, you know, and um, there, are, there are people out there who are very committed to having really efficient workflows or having yeah. really excellent um, software platforms and being able to deliver things that other people can't. You know, you've had, a, you had that fantastic business expert on saying, give options and say you'll do VR and say you'll do this and say you'll do that. Yeah. And that's definitely yeah. a really valid way of demonstrating, you know, your, your capabilities as a practice and why someone should go with you and not someone else. You know, and 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 really, to be really blunt, one of the other alternatives which we are often confronted with, or a bit uneasy about, you know, um, maybe we we have the we have a privilege in being uneasy about that, is doing projects for profit. I mean, well, most. <laughs> the, 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 hang the, on a minute. Yeah, yeah, not, go not, on. And, and, oh, not, and, and I don't mean our profit, as in like what we what we have to, what we the dividend that we can use beyond existential needs to to grow our practice yeah, yeah. and and improve yeah. our lives i mean the profit in the built environment the the, the value of development maximizing the yield for developers yeah. the the, uh, the the built environment is mostly linked to wealth it's a yeah. commodity in australia it's heavily commodified um the other day we learned that a dual occupancy development that we had been involved in that the top unit of that sold for an astronomical price and there would be an an alternate reality in which and that's the second time for us that a development that we were involved in um, unlocked a huge amount of capital Um, 
and and in an alternative reality, maybe in one where we had more overseas trips, a better lifestyle, and a smoother everyday life, we would be much, we'd lean into that and be much more focused on how we can demonstrate that the work that we do gives, you know, is 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 incredibly valuable to developers. Um, it just doesn't feel it's and that's where it comes back to the newspaper, you know, you kind of and what we read. It just doesn't feel. Um, in another way, sustainable to us emotionally and in terms of our desire to do what we do. We don't think that architecture is a particularly, um, in, in a, you know, generally is a particularly sort of profitable um, and lucrative enterprise. You know, the, the, we, we know that if we were stockbrokers or if we were just like consultants in some other sphere, we could probably have a much better return on our work. Um, we yeah. are passionate about what we do. We do it because we love it. We feel so lucky to go in every day and do this amazing thing that was what we dreamed of doing and what we grew up in as well for Grace and me. You know, this is like something that we had dreamed of well before we started studying. Um, so so that's not our focus. Our focus is on on the the world of architecture rather than the byproduct of architecture. And, um, and we're yeah. a bit uneasy about, we would like a different reality where architecture wasn't as linked to private profit um, and we're yeah. trying to steer our work as much as we can towards that reality um, and away from just being a kind of a service to being something which is also about managing change in a humane fashion. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting that, you know, there is a lot of ideas-driven firms around the world that have uh, this secret underbelly of crappy for-profit work that they're churning out that sort of like finances the cool good stuff they're working on i remember when i was i was doing like a work experience thing in in japan at uh, a studio called tezuka architects and um we'd always have these interns rocking up that had just come from atelier bow wow and i probably shouldn't like <laughs> bad mouth them on the podcast but that would be like oh how long were you there for that'd be like four weeks and we're like four weeks what you quit atelier bow wow after four weeks what are you doing here and they would be like yeah well we thought we were going to be working on all this cool stuff and they had us just working on these like rubbish apartment buildings and 7-elevens and car parking structures and things like that that they were just doing and and so there's like these real two sides to these studios and the more I found out like that was every studio was kind of like that in that we were seeing in Tokyo they had this other side that never never was photographed never was written about never put on the website and I think like that's uh, I'm sure you've sort of seen your kind of share of that out there in the world too and I'm just interested like do you think that that you mentioned earlier that you think like to, to do more of what you want to do um, on the ideas side, you, you know, you need that, you need to find that source of financing, that patron, that, that, that somewhere that that money's going to come from. Um, does it maybe end up being like, you know, developments that we never tell anybody about or what? <laughs> well, well, it doesn't have to be, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I don't think it has to be that extreme, you know, because no. like when I, I exactly. remember visiting, I remember visiting Basel, with architect and going around with like architect design friends and every bloody bar or shop or building we went into had actually been designed or renovated by Herzog de Muron. And it's like their books are already thick enough. Yeah. And it was, but they'd actually designed everything in the entire town. And yeah. I found it really beautiful that they were doing this work, which was kind of under the radar yeah. was, was working well, was good. And, but just wasn't, they were able to kind of distinguish between what was a good, nice local job with a good outcome from what was going to be in a monograph. Um, yep. And some people are surprised because it makes, we, if, you, if you 
if you you can interpret what we talk about in our work or how we position ourselves as a practice as if we were suddenly kind of elitists who are like, oh, we'll only work on stuff what we think is really like conceptually rich or something. Yeah. And, you know, I will, we will take on any type of job. We've taken on work for car parks. You know, we've taken on work by, you know, by strata managers who wanted to redo access or, or look yeah. at, you know, or, you know, look at the backyards of things. It's actually always interesting. And I think that you don't have to make your work poor or crassly commercial as a counterpoint to the stuff you put your most energy into. And yeah. I think realistically, if we want to generate more ideas work, it will come from having more of a solid base in the number of concurrent projects rather than just having these sort of little special moments. Our work yeah. has tended to be really intense focuses on really special clients and really special projects, but that's not really by design. That's just how our network has kind of grown. And we would love to have um, more typical work, if you like, whether it's residential or commercial, that's, you know, that's underpinning the, the practice. And, you know, for example, along with, I think, about 10 other emerging, quote unquote, emerging practices in, in Sydney, we put in recently for a standard toilet block in Glebe that's meant to emulate the other city of Sydney toilet blocks. You know, like, like there's no real, like, it's not going to be a, I can't write you a concept about why this is going to be a particularly unusual or different thing, but we're really interested in just getting runs on the board and building things and, and trying to do them really well and just building up our experience base, but also just ticking over. We really love just the, you know, part of, I think why a lot of people are attracted to architectural practice is the, the sort of mindfulness of just sitting there drawing something, being immersed in it, just sort of figuring out which way you need to rotate something or how to close off a, a wall or, 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 you know, or just working through a set of hand-drawn details that you need to bring into CAD. All of that sort of stuff is actually really soothing and lovely to do. So we would happily do more of that. And I don't think that, I think that really the other, you know, the big realization for Grace and me, the thing that drives so much of what we do is we both independently come to the realization that everyday life, that the spaces that we spend our time in that are just part of the kind of continuum of things that are out there in the world, the parks, the ordinary buildings, the shops, the cafes, the apartment buildings that aren't done by some, you know, they're not, you know, Angelo didn't design them or, or Adam from SJB, you know, they're, they're run of the mill buildings. That's actually the most, where we spend most of our lives and the most interesting and the most kind of vital places. They're the places where lives just sort of unfold. Architecture is like this uncomfortable new wound that needs to heal back into its environment. The more beautiful and resolved it is, the easier that healing process the ambition ultimately is to make things that are part of that seem like they're part of the everyday world, but don't seem wasteful or thoughtless. That they're carefully done. That there's value in all the decisions that are made, but that they're not out there commanding attention as some kind of status symbol or or extreme environment. Um, and we've seen how as architecture becomes more bureaucratic, involves more work in advance, more drawings, more approvals, and there's more and more consultants and actors and project managers involved how the myth of this kind of all-conquering singular architect has grown. You know, the, the Valerio Olgiatis of the world have become much more important now than they ever were. Um, there's a reason that Kim Kardashian's hiring Taro Ando for her house. You know, the people, these sort of singular people who make things out of a kind of mono material with an unbelievably restrained palette of detailing and a kind of environment which is always architectural and can never be your kind of everyday space. Those people have become the kind of most, the, the, the kind of they've been perceived as being the icons of the profession. 
Um, but that's just through the rarity and the, and the unreality of that type of work. And I don't think that's satisfying. Like I don't want to design environments for clients where they think of me every time they like try to put their coffee cup down or something. Like I'd much rather disappear and not be part of their thoughts and they're just enjoying their space and I can move yeah. on without this fear that like the angle of the room is going to, you know, um, prevent their, their family from expanding or whatever the possible, you know, worst yeah. case scenario is. Yeah. I mean, it, this is, this is a little bit of a change of topic, I suppose, but um, something that is interesting though, in terms of all of this is that you, you guys did a really amazing house recently and um super conventional in terms of not the not the house but the 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 idea of a small practice producing a sick house and it going in magazines and having awesome photos and there being nothing you know nothing nothing kind of um like it just being so grounded to that sort of residential space that single residential space there's something so just normal about that and typical about that that i think is so interesting for a practice such a such a kind of seemed like a contrast for a practice like yours that is is much is really into these bigger ideas and there's obviously a mix of scales and things like that but to just to just come out with a house like a standard practice kind of move and to have it be so well so well received and and, and do so well is just it's just interesting and i think it's an interesting look and we and we chatted about it a little while ago and this idea of like the way that practices are kind of in australia sort of judged on houses that you're kind of only taken seriously when you do a house is kind of an interesting one right i mean what was your what was your sort of experiences with the project and it kind of coming out into the world like do you feel like it kind of changed maybe the way that people were perceiving the studio or were you going oh we've had sort of attention before but this maybe has a bit of a different kind of feel to it like a different vibe thanks dave that's very kind of you that's obviously that that i think you're referring to highland's house and that was very much grace's baby you know like I can't you know in talking about it I I have to um also acknowledge the fact that that's a real labor of love for Grace and she was across every aspect of that and often I was just riding along with her admiring the caliber of the work like I can't tell you I know why it's the color it is for example but I can't tell you how that decision was made um it just arrived at a really happy outcome we we knew that like I, I knew I could feel it I knew that before that that when we were at interacting with other people in the industry or when we were asked to give a talk at university or something, everyone was like, oh, these guys, they're just amateurs, you know, like they, they've done a few competitions, they've done a few exhibitions, they've done some installations, but they haven't done a house or anything like that. Yeah, like no, no respect there for, uh, until you like, yeah, total but, disrespect but, for all those achievements. Like they don't count in Australia. <laughs> did, did, did I respect myself? Because I was also part of that. Like I, I also, I could, like the problem was I could, I, I, I empath- like I understood where they were coming from as well. Um, I get it. Um, and ultimately like what we crave is to be making work in the world and and learning yeah. from it. And, and so we were missing that ourselves. It was like a hole in our repertoire to have been through that process. Um, we were lucky, as you always are. I mean, everyone, all the special guests you have have had good fortune. We had amazing clients yeah. who, who once we got through some, like some very, some initial extreme skepticism about us, um, warmed into that process and then really backed us through some things like we changed the roof. We had an agreed roof form and we just, we, we were looking at it. Actually, I had a call with the curators of the Venice Biennale, Grafton Architects, who were calling us when they were preparing for Venice to see, to judge whether they wanted us in there in the mix. 
And after that, and I realized when we made the call that I couldn't show them that project. I was like, I don't, I can't show them this as an example of something that will be interesting to them. And then, and, and Grace and I were feeling the same way. And that led us to, that wasn't the driver behind the design change, but it clued us into the fact that things weren't as resolved as they should be. And we went back and started looking back over the project to, to examine whether it was as good as it could be. And that we had to come back to the clients and say, hey, we actually don't think it's as good. Even though you've signed off on its form, we actually would like to change the form. And that was a real, they look back on that as a real fight or flight moment. Like they were wondering whether to ditch us at that point. That really threw them. And ultimately they feel really happy that, that, that we did that and that they went forward with that. Like we all feel that that was the key moment in the project actually where we all, where we took a risk together and jumped in and we're like, okay, this is what we want out of it. I, can, I think really the speculative work has come out of quiet moments and it's come out of knowing that we needed to keep pushing if we were going to get more work and establish ourselves. You know, that the, the speculative work, the, the things, the other things we've been involved with, exhibitions and lecture series and running events and all these sorts of things has partly come out of just knowing we needed to keep moving ahead. Yeah. We couldn't just sit there and wait for jobs to come in. In the Sean Godsell, I wait for the phone to ring and that's when I work type way. Like that, we can't, we, yeah. we don't have yeah. a reality that would make that possible. So, but if we had a string of houses, you know, if if um, apparently Highlands is going to get some European press soon, which is really exciting. Okay. If we get, if we suddenly Very get a cool. whole run of Chateaus. European clientele or something, <laughs> you know, we'll probably go really quiet on the speculative stuff because we just won't have the time, but we'll be really happy. Yeah, you know? cemetery like, shmemeteries. We're busy working on... Five well, million euro things in the wilderness. It's exciting stuff. Well, well, actually, the dream is, you know, the dream really for me, and not for, not necessarily for Grace, but my dream is just to work on cemeteries for the rest of my life. <laughs> I think that'd be really amazing. Um, I don't this think is, that's going to be the reality. This is like but... a stepping stone to to that to that work. I love it. Very cool. So that's so that's cool. So so Highlands is going to pick up some pick up some press, and then so you're talking about it kind of leading maybe to this sort of. Uh, more sort of stable string of maybe residential projects coming off the back of that and then that being this good kind of like stabilizer in the practice. Yeah, I think so. I mean, of course, the the you know, every residential client is very different and their circumstances are different. Yeah. So you can want that to be a reliable source of work, but it's also very high intensity in terms of yeah. creating and managing that relationship and the sorts yep. of things that can move around. We, don't, we won't have a one-size-fits-all approach, so it's wishful thinking to think that if we gain a lot more residential work, it will mean sort of smooth sailing. I think if we were working for commercial yeah. developers on on sort of big boxes or something, that would be a much smoother process. Um, mm. And the cemetery work, can, when it's running, can be really smooth actually because yeah. unlike a house, the parameters are really clear. What you need to get out of it's really clear. Yeah. It's not a matter of people don't have the, – the, our client, our cemetery clients don't tend to, don't tend to have their own inner – vision of what it will turn out like which yeah. they're using to, they're judging what we do against or they're sort of or sort of trying to you know use echolocation to get closer and closer to what the perfect thing would look like for them but yeah i mean just in terms of just forecasting work and cash flow and upgrading systems and all those sorts of things you need to do to maintain a practice seeing a whole lot of residential work come in um, and being able to kind of plan it out would make all of those things a lot easier rather than the, the other, you know, the other thing, which is sort of dangling the bait for a big cemetery job and you kind of, the whole tribe feeds um, when it comes in and then you kind of go back out again and, and, and you know, and, and the, the, you know, have to wait again with the bait in the water. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's a yeah. Kind of, it's a very, yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
That's really, really interesting. Just, I mean, this question has kind of popped into mind, but I experienced this personally as like marketing for architects. Like it's a very small niche. There's only a few people in the country that really do it, that specialize in it, right? But early on, it was super clear from day one that because of the size of that market being quite small, that it made sense to just think first and foremost about international presence and working with clients internationally and having no no focus on Australian architects as a priority, but just to go, hey, my, my business is everywhere. It has to be because that's my market. Um, when you have a very, very narrow niche like this, I think it, it, it kind of fits naturally with your very international outlook in general, because I feel like if you were trying to do that as Sydney cemeteries, you'd be waiting like probably 15 years between projects, right? I mean, because it's such a low volume, high value business that you almost need to broaden to the planet, don't you, to kind of make it like viable as a thing to continue on with. Is that sort of, is that something that you've kind of thought about with that, with that area and areas like that, that are not, you know, they can't just be like a local thing. I think it's also to a certain extent, that's about working in Australia because what you need to have is a form you need, you need to kind of, you need to be able to distinguish yourself some way. And um, you could do that through having a really impressive practice or a really big practice. You can out compete people that way. But um, another way is to show that you're part of some kind of, you know, that you have international interests, that you have these yep. international connections. And then you can show people in Australia that your work has relevance beyond a kind of local market and that you're really, that you're aware of and responding to what's happening globally. Um, and I think that's really important in Australia in particular, because I think that in Europe, for example, where you have a whole lot of um, proximate nations with different kind of that are that are very adamant about their own identities in that sort of tapestry. Yeah, it's actually yeah. the the biggest badge of honour is to be incredibly local in your focus and to be very conscious of your particular conditions. Where yep. in Australia we feel very isolated and we feel um, we're very concerned. I think generally that we're not necessarily aware of all of the issues that we need to be and that we're not operating at this like this kind of um, platonic ideal of a global standard so being able to go out there and and test what you're doing in that world that i think there's a lot of there's a lot of perceived value through that exchange but but the other thing is just like what really interests me is that a lot of the our peers spend almost all their energy looking at what other people are doing in around australia yeah. And that, yep. they see that as the kind of scope of what's possible. Yeah. It's very, it's very true. And I was just thinking about it as you were talking, thinking the same thing, going like my experience and observation and like, this is not a judgment for anyone. I'm not saying that this is a bad thing. I'm no, I'm no bloody expert in, you know, what everyone's doing all over the planet. I'm just as bad as anybody else, like focusing in very, very narrowly in Australia. But um, but, you know, I speak to architects every single day. It's my job. Like I talk to them all day, every day about business, about their work, about their marketing, all that sort of thing. No one is talking at all about international stuff at all. There's like no exposure. Like no one's bringing that up. It's just not coming up at all. Um, people are not following, whether we're, even if we're just talking about architecture media, like people are not following international architecture media, generally speaking. You get the odd one who's kind of really cool and they subscribe to, you know, like always think about like, 
MRTN follow like being Anthony being like a religious kind of New Yorker reader and that bringing it up about the podcast and me being like wow man that stood out to me to kind of hear that sort of thing and then Sean Godsell said that as well but you know there's there's the rare architect that's doing that but for the most part my observation is everyone's just you know they're just locked in on on Australian stuff and we're I think we're all a bit like that and maybe that's um it really stood out to me when you first brought that up to me when we last spoke that that's something that you kind of have you guys almost um, just just the fact that you're keeping your kind of feelers out there on the rest of the world is, is is something that just straight away kind of separates you a little bit from other architects locally. Um, well, you guys are other architects, but um, but yeah, no, just just it's interesting. Is that is that sort of something that you think about often, or it's something that you've kind of picked up on this idea of this intense focus on what's happening in Australia? It just seems curious to me that people are so that it's so important to them, um, particularly yeah. in things like houses. Because I think that there really are Australian architects who I would say are really at the forefront of what's happening internationally. Like I think that Baraka, Baraka and Wright, Mauro and Louise, when I think of their work, I think that's right. You know, like there's, I don't know if there's, there's not much better work happening around the world, even though yes. they're sort of like architects, architects. Yeah. Uh, in terms of their sensitivity to what happens on site and the ground conditions and their ability to make this connection between really widespread, important ecological issues and very small adjustments to a to a plan like that type of scalar multi-scalar thinking that's really what what appeals to me yeah and also it's something that the other part of that that you know that i'm now understanding you know like dave you're acting as my therapist today i'm understanding this through talking to you about it is that is that uh that there's it's about what you can get your teeth into and what you can actually use and there's so much inscrutable stuff in the you know in in the substance of a of, of a lot of this Australian work which has been done for really fantastic clients, I look at an you know like a fantastic architect's each house, and I really find it hard to unlock where all the, how all those decisions have arrived. Um, I can see it looks incredibly elegant and beautiful, but I can't imagine myself doing it. It seems like it's heavily authored and super contingent on some kind of internal conversation happening with the client. It's definitely not self evident. You don't go and create like a bellows house because you're relating to this, that, and other factor. It's coming from like this kind of internal drive to make something that's an incredibly singular object as a house yeah. and an amazing, amazing cinema, cinema, you know, sort of cinematic environment. But um, the work that I'm really attracted to and Grace is really attracted to is this stuff with a really clear mission statement and clear outcome. So we can look at work by a French firm, Bast, and we can see that. They're just, they're trying to do the kind of minimal intervention that will make something work. And they want to be judged by the, what the work looked like before and how tiny and purposeful what they added was. Great. You can you can look at that and you can go, okay, that's this looks like all you'd need to do to make this room adaptable. Great. I can use that now. Um, so what we are looking for are the tools that we can mine out of other projects and because we have access to all of this work all over the world now through all of these different channels, we just go broad when we look for that. And whether that's, you know, and that can be historical as well as contemporary. And you've just got like fundamentally, it's just a larger resource. Australia has a population of 25 million people. We've got a great architectural community, but it's never going to have as many ideas as it, as the entire world architecture scene and having said that there's heaps of stuff that's happening you know in south america or in asia that 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 doesn't pop up as as easily as what's happening in europe we don't tend to spend a lot of time in north america 
um, in terms yeah, of North, contemporary architecture. They're, North they're America is like a Bermuda Triangle of architecture. <laughs> like I feel like there's 300 million people there and and, and very little architecture that makes it across just, our but, but desks you, in terms of. Yeah, but when you see something good out of North America, you're like those guys yeah. are absolute ninjas. So there's these guys called Davidson Raphaelitis, who I think are based in Buffalo, New York. Oh, um, and uh, and they're, they're they're doing really interesting lo-fi adaptations of existing spaces and things like that that immediately punch out as being spatially clever. They've got great plans, and it's like if they're doing that in that American ecosystem that generally produces this kind of quite plastic work, you know that they've you know you know it's worth looking at, and you pay you can pay attention to it, and it might give you something that you can use. And I think the other, the, you know, the other side of that is that you go for these, you're looking for ideas and you're looking for tools because we don't have the budgets on our projects to just kind of do anything. We have to be really effective. We have to try and do things that have impact, yeah. um, unlock spatial possibilities, but the means aren't great. Um, and so um, we're not just kind of, um, we can't look across at some of the work that's happening from the, from the firms that, that are doing really amazing residential work in Australia because we can't, um, emulate that conversely what Anthony Gill is doing is constantly in my mind you know like someone like that is doing work that there's a yeah. constant reference yeah it's it, it it's interesting because I think the reputation that Australia has developed internationally is that we're doing awesome work like how do Australian architects do all this awesome work but there is this sort of like disbelief at the scale of the projects and the sort of the level that like residential real estate gets to you know you just look through the comments on the local project YouTube channel of all these people from overseas going like, how are there this many $20 million houses in Australia designed by amazing architects? Like it's just, it's mind blowing to people that, but, but it's interesting that you're kind of viewing it from your shoes of going, well, you know, our clients are not $20 million, uh, whatever. So if we look at Australian architects, we're not going to get the right ideas on how to be efficient and economical and, uh, and make stuff happen with limitations as much as we do from overseas where they don't have, this sort of scale of budgets and things like that. So that's kind of interesting that you, yeah, you can't even look at Australia as much because it's sort of like out of reach in some ways. Some of this, some of the work that goes on in this country is just crazy. Yeah, that's that's definitely because the case. Sydney, you guys are in Sydney, the heart of it. Yeah, that's 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 absolutely the case. And also, but just like what's available to us because it's not just the budgets of those projects. That would be a convenient excuse, but it's also yeah. people who've been in that space for a really long time, who have like fantastic technique. Yeah. And we're not going to arrive tomorrow on the scene with that level of, of, of just, you know, expertise and know-how in terms of detailing extraordinary window reveals and things like that. That, that builds up over time. Um, and yeah. part of what you get from looking at this stuff, the other opportunity you get from looking at something that's overseas rather than local is a kind of detachment where you can just salvage you can kind of rip out what you want without being too aware of the circumstances or too aware of the whole picture it's almost um it's empowering i actually think that was empowering for sean godsell and and the and you know i'm not mentioning him in particular but he was someone on your podcast mm. but the, the 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 an older generation of architects or a more established generation of architects um they would see work in often in black and white with only two or three pictures in a magazine and you could imagine the rest. You'd get a plan, you'd get a detail, yeah. and that was it. You're off and running. Um, now you see 37 different photos, and you're, it's almost too much information about what it is you're deriving um, from. So part of the thing about looking at work overseas is you can kind of 
you can kind of muck it up. Australians are really good at that. We take this work from overseas or we take ideas from overseas and we kind of productively misinterpret them. I think that's what we often do. We kind of imagine something is one way. Yeah. Um, if we were if we were if we were trying to take from our local environment, we'd be too aware of mm. of the conditions that made it and what you know, and we'd know that that incredibly beautiful awning isn't going to turn out that way. You know, like we know that we could try and make the the Dirbat Block Jaggers awning, but it will just look like a bad, chunkier copy. Mm. So what we do instead is we either look for stuff which is obviously much more immediate and attainable in its like conditions and budget, or we just come up with our own version of something, but someone can't, it's not an immediate comparison anymore. It's like something that was done for the Chilean climate that's now in Sydney or the Southern Highlands or something, it's going to have a different outcome and we're kind of, and we're much more comfortable with that. You know, it's something that sprung up earlier that came to mind or, or that resonated a little bit was when you were talking about the situation with Highlands House where you were presenting it to the exhibition people overseas. You realised in doing so that you're like, hang on a minute, like we, this is probably not at the highest possible standard that it could be at. We need to actually work a little bit harder like on this one and put a bit more, rethink this one a little bit. You know, it's something that other guests have brought up that I always find interesting is this because I'm always trying to get deal with this conflict of like, you know, doing stuff for other architects versus doing it for clients and who's your intended audience and who's the real target of the work and the effort that goes into what you do and everything. And it's a, it's a constant conflict that comes up in every marketing decision that we make. So that's why it's so sort of close to me is that we're often thinking about, are we doing this for other architects or are we doing this for potential clients or potential employees? Like who's the target audience of this decision? And, um, but, but one, one thing that I find interesting that sort of bridges the gap a little bit is architects that bring up that, you know, by engaging with other architects and talking about their work to their architectural community through awards, through talks, through just various more informal forms of engagement, that where they see the benefit of that being is that it kind of gets them to think about working harder on their work and raising that standard because the expectations are actually a lot higher, like that, you know, there's more pressure from peers than there are from clients <laughs> to, to do really good work. And sometimes like, particularly when this issue of kind of stagnation or burnout, like we're all people We're you know, we're not always super inspired and passionate in our careers. Like most of the time, we're probably not that like sometimes your peers can kind of reignite that a little bit and kind of whip you into shape a little bit and go, is that really the best way you could have done that? And I don't know, it's just, it's a, it's a thing that comes up, but I, I sort of think of it as this really kind of like, I like to see a really wholesome beneficial side to, you know, it's not just kind of showing off in front of other architects and trying to get an ego boost. Like there is some, some real tangible benefits to doing that sort of stuff. So anyway, I just thought I'd put that out there because it kind of came to mind when you brought up that situation. It reminds me of something I've thought about a lot. I think you summed that up really well. Having said that, when we look back strategically at that decision about the roof, I actually explained to the clients that's what had happened. Yeah. And that's part of why there was a really big dilemma about it. Whereas I could have said there actually the brief was changing and we could have been much more strategic about explaining, hey, in response to the brief, we changed this, we changed that, and we could have had a smoother ride. But from what but I, I think you summed it up really well and it is a really it's a really nice and positive way of looking at that. If you are, you know, architects are not doctors, but if you're a doctor, you don't design your way, your diagnosis and your way of working around what your clientele say is easier for them to do. You know, like if you treat back issues and, and, and everyone who comes in just wants the pain managed rather than dealing with the problem, like, and that's how you work, you're going to get, end up like being cited for misconduct. So you, you, (laughs) so the the feedback that's like, we need to know that people 
enjoy and find and, and love and find really usable the things that we've asked them to make a huge investment in. But to improve, if we're going to improve for next time, part, part that feedback is really important, but so is all of these observations of people, other people working in the field who might be able to give us a sense of other things that we could target or that are more effective. Even really simple things like built-in kitchens, which are super popular still, um, you're locking in fixtures and appliances that will date. That kitchen has a short lifespan. It will need to be ripped out again when those things are changed. If you want to design for disassembly and you want to design for, for changing needs and you want to reduce waste, you try not to build those things in. Um, and then you can look at work by other people that does that really elegantly. And ah, now you've got a solution for how you might explain to a client why it will look nice still to not have your fridge behind a, you know, a panel. So that's, it's really, it often really, they're really useful insights. They're not just about this high architecture thing. And we, and I think the confusion comes in when you're trying to get things over the line that don't have a functional or practical purpose and you can't justify or explain. Like yeah. if I really like Carlo yeah. Scarpa Archivolts and I've just been, or I really like, I've seen some project that had like a really complicated skylight um, or, and, or really, a really strange handle. And I'm just trying to get that in there. Like I just crave, yeah. I crave the feeling of, of like mastery that doing that would, would impart, that would give me a sense of status. Then obviously I'm going to be at odds with the client. I have this big dilemma then about like, who am I doing it for? Um, and what we really aspire to, which is really a work in progress, is this sense of, of directness. We want to be able to align what we set out to do with what the outcomes are. And then it shouldn't be a, a disconnect between our clients and the, and the architectural community. Everyone should be, we should be able to say, we wanted to do this and we did it this way um, and be really explicit about that rather than kind of hiding, hoping we can, we can sneak in these kind of fun references and details that architects will salivate over, but our clients will would have just been really happy with like a plasterboard ceiling. Yeah, that's that's like that's that's not something that we're that interested in. But that's rife in Australian work because of the kind of budgets and opportunities that come out of these projects. You know, like you see a lot of stuff in Australian work in particular that's just like architects having fun, and it's at first glance super impressive and amazing and beautiful. But ultimately, it's needless. It's it's wasteful. It doesn't need to happen. It has a carbon cost. It has a time cost. Um, it's very specific to the people who are who have commissioned the house, but may get torn down by the next people who come in. Um, we see that part of the value of working on cemeteries and doing this really like expedient utilitarian work is we see the we see that for the wasteful thing that it is, and we'd much prefer that people have nicer paintings, more beautiful house plants, great furniture um, that they mm. bring in that gives mm. that creates that sense of personalization and difference than it comes from like the the drama of the architectural living room with its extraordinary fire, you know, molded fireplace or something like, and we're, and, and there's a balance yeah. between those things, but we're trying like, that's our, that's where we're, we're trying to head in our work towards a more kind of direct and elemental understanding of what we're doing. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I feel like I'm getting like way out of my depth talking about this one, but when it comes to those sort of like 
not practical sort of more flamboyant elements of projects where it's just I think it's cool and I want it in there I personally am like a really big fan of that sort of stuff and I know you're not supposed to say it but um I I appreciate and enjoy the entertainment value of certain architectural decisions and they bring me a lot of joy and happiness when I look at them and I always feel like in some ways that is uh like a utility in itself or that has like a value for me as a consumer like I spend all day looking at architectural photography and maybe I just like photos and and I'm not a real, uh, I'm consuming architecture the wrong way. I should be going and physically experiencing it and owning it and paying for it more often. But, um, but when I, but when I look at those sorts of things, I, I get a lot of value out of some of those decisions that, uh, that come in there. So I guess like wasteful in one sense, but also really bloody entertaining sometimes. So I, I what <laughs> is there, is that a, is that yeah. a, is there any yeah. merit to that defense at all? Oh, yeah. no, no, totally, totally. I think, I think when I say that, I think that's really important that you said that hopefully this will be part of your, your, your podcast because Maybe. you could read what I said the wrong way. That's, I'm talking really about what resonates with us. Yeah. We don't feel like we're going to add a lot of value by yeah. creating a kind of total environment or being really fixated on, on craft and on, and on and in a kind of generative way. But yeah. for people, for architects who are really skilled in that, like, you know, you could talk about somebody like John Wardle and his incredibly successful practice. Every bit of joinery he's done through his career has been a kind of prototype yeah. and he's applied those things and increased their scale on, on projects of increasing complexity. And they've actually been part of not only are they things that his clients find really wonderful and strange and rich and they become part of, you know, they, 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 they could have become part of the story of the place, but they also have been giving him and his team valuable insights into how to make things which has allowed them to mm. do other things and maybe donovan hill is the best example of that you yeah. know donovan hill they every time basically anything that could be designed donovan hill designed and they built up this ecosystem of parts and and attitudes that made public buildings feel a lot more intimate and domestic and therefore welcoming through that exploration and you could say one of the you know you could say there are things that are unnecessary in houses early but then when you see them arrive at the scale of a university building later, you're like, wow, that was a really necessary experiment. Yeah. I think for us, we are very analytical and we are really, we're really, what we really want is to be able to show evidence of what we're doing. And I don't think we have that hand. Like Grace and I in our practice, we don't have this kind of like one of us isn't the kind of auteur um, who pumps out yeah. a sketch and that's the direction. Um, yeah. we, we are whittling down our ideas to try to make sure they're really purposeful and replicable and that we can explain them and that we can learn from them and build yep. on them next time. And because of that, um, we would rather that the all of the other kind of life and energy comes out of the everyday conditions of a project rather than like it's it's kind of architecture. I love what you're saying about the realities of, you know, like we maybe we don't do some of these things, but the client can have nicer artwork and nicer furniture and nicer plants and landscaping. I think that's so, so true and something that's been coming up recently, like, Nielsen Jenkins, when they came on talking about how, you know, making sure that there's kind of like room for the landscape, like really protected in the budget because it's such a key thing and clients just tend to kind of run out of money and then they end up with a lawn rather than landscaping that the project was kind of designed around. And I, I kind of like that idea of like thinking bigger picture about that client and their budget and, and, and those sorts of things, just as one kind of example in that. But I, I, overall, like, you're absolutely right, man. Well, uh, David, I feel like we actually need to finish up there. We're, we're, we are over time and it's really funny because never usually get 
into conversations about architecture on the podcast, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, yeah. I avoid them like the plague because uh, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm stepping into the ring with a bunch of Muhammad Ali's uh, in terms of my guests. And I, I, it's something that I, I, I'm sort of reluctant to wade into. But uh, it was really great to talk about that stuff today because I think, you know, you guys are real, you're a big ideas, big philosophy, know what you're about kind of practice. And actually, one thing we didn't really get to talk about much, but I would encourage like anybody listening to go check out um, other architects website just to just to read the copy that's on any of their different kind of project categories or even their project pages just in terms of how kind of clearly it articulates sort of what they're about i think it's really really great but but yeah anyway man thank you so much for for all the, the all the architecture chat i love it and it'd be great to have you back sometime to do it again my pleasure thank you so much dave That was my conversation with David Newstone from Other Architects. If you'd like to learn more about Other Architects, you can visit otherarchitects.com. You can also follow the studio on Instagram at Other Architects. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.